I hope that you're, you know, uh, learning, getting into stuff. I know having uh, Google available to us is both the best thing ever and sometimes the worst thing. We're going to kind of talk a little bit about today about what that looks like in our lives. But when we have this ability to be able to search for anything, find a video, figure stuff out, it's awesome. But also when we Google something, we're essentially letting whatever the most popular thing that the culture is reading about the topic comes to the top, whatever Google wants us to see comes to the top, whatever the sort of, whoever there's some sort of like hand in the background guiding whatever's showing in those search results, that comes to the top. And sometimes we're actually uh, looking at Jesus in a way uh, that allows the culture, the, the internet, the people around us to define who Jesus is. And there's something amazing about the story that we're going to look at today where uh, we're looking at the story of Nicodemus, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he has this just like general sort of curiosity and he's open to what Jesus has to say. And he lets Jesus define himself to Nicodemus. So he's not coming with his preconceived ideas. He's open to what Jesus has to say. He has this curiosity. He's not listening to the world around him. He's not listening to the culture. He's not listening to the people that he's even friends with and connected with, okay? And so he's able to listen and hear what Jesus has to say about himself. Um, And, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about Matthew and how unlikely of a disciple Matthew is. Nicodemus might even be more of an unlikely disciple than Matthew was, but coming from a completely different subsection of culture in their day. So I'm going to pick up the story here in, uh, in John chapter 3, and I'm going to start with verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not... With him. So what do we learn about uh, Nicodemus right away? He is a Pharisee. Pharisee meaning he was one of the, the spiritual elite, one of the, the people who had essentially, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, where you know, they build fences around fences around fences when it comes to perfection. So there's a rule, hey, you should really honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then they go, okay, so we can't do work on the Sabbath, so here's a, we got to make sure that we don't do work. And then, well, let's define work. Let's put another fence in here. We can't go further than this far on a walk. We can't pick up more than this weight. We can't do certain things that would require us to work. So we have to put another fence here. And then there's another one. We can't let our animals do any of this stuff. We can't let our children, like, and so they would have all these fences, all these rules, all these regulations to make sure they were perfect. And if you're looking for somebody who was like a great human, an awesome person, somebody who you might even like say, I hope my kid grows up to be like Nick here. Like one day I hope he's like Nick. Uh, you, you look at Nicodemus and you'd be like, this is a good dude. He's a good guy. He's a moral person. He's a religious person because he's part of the Pharisees. We give Pharisees a bad name because, yes, they do get self-righteous. Many of them were self-righteous. And think about what the word self-righteous means. Meaning like their righteousness comes from their deeds, themselves. Right? And so Pharisees struggle with that. But not all of them were like that. Nicodemus, we see, is a little different than the average Pharisee. But he's part of this religious elite. He's part of this group of people that are like perfect. Paul even said about himself, because he was a Pharisee, he said, hey, I, I, as far as the world goes, I was perfect. You know, someone who followed the law my entire life and became a Pharisee. But that wasn't enough. I needed more than that. That wasn't what saved me. That, that couldn't ever save me. Right? So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Then it says, um, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And you're like, okay, cool, what's that? Like, so the Jewish ruling council was a board of people who included Sadducees and Pharisees and 
basically all the groups within Jerusalem or within Israel that could be represented on this, on this sort of board that made decisions for the community and that interacted with, with Rome and was in charge of a lot of the, like, the religious holidays they had. There was a lot of like, important moving parts going around, how to take care of all of these different groups of people and allow them to worship in a little bit different ways. Even though they were all part of Israel, they had different viewpoints and different beliefs. And so they kind of had this council. And this was a smaller group of people. To be on this council was even more intense. So he was even, even a higher status person than a regular Pharisee. There were thousands of those. He was even like on this smaller group of leaders, which was more like 100, more like 70. Okay, So like this was a smaller group of people. So he's a very, very important person, a very high up leader, an elite of the time. A religious elite, an edu- uh, a, um, as far as education-wise, he was elite. As far as financial, he was elite. He was a very, very high-status person. So he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. He calls Jesus Rabbi, which is a term of respect. This is why I know he's not a self-righteous person. He's coming with an honest amount of curiosity. He's really asking Jesus, and what I, is what I'm seeing really what's going on here? Can you tell me what you really are about? Like, what's the story here with you? Like, we've seen people come before, and they've, you know, talked about the fact that they were a Messiah. We don't, we don't always trust these people. They've created a lot, all kinds of havoc within Israel. They've, you know, whipped a bunch of people up, and then we've gotten squashed by Rome a couple times because of this. Like, I just want to know who you are, and I want you to be able to define yourself. And you could be like, why does he come at night? Isn't that like a, a fearful thing? Is he afraid? Yeah, he's probably a little bit afraid of the people around him. But also, if you wanted to have an honest conversation with Jesus without thousands of people watching you and try to get an honest question out and have an honest answer with Jesus, this is how you would have had to do it. There would have been no way for him to not do this, to do this publicly. If it was publicly done, Jesus wouldn't have given him the same answer he gives him. And Nicodemus couldn't have asked the same questions of Jesus that he asks. So there is a, a part of it where he's like, yeah, he has a respect and fear for the people around him who wouldn't see it his way. But also, he maybe just wants like an honest conversation with Jesus and wants to hear his words for himself. We're going to see that Nicodemus is even that much more elite in a minute here. But he is basically one of the most powerful, one of the most rich, one of the most religious, uh, just an, a, a really as far as the, the world at that day and age, the Israels, uh, the way they would look at him, he was one of the most respected people that possibly could have come and had a conversation with Jesus. So yes, we always think about Jesus reaching out to the down and out, right? We think about the woman at the well, and we think about prostitutes, and we think about you know, uh, tax collectors and sinners and all these people who Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with associating with. We talked about that a couple weeks ago where, you know, the... Guilt by association is not a thing for Jesus. He doesn't worry about that. But honestly, there was a little bit of, of uh, I think when we can look at the Pharisees sometimes, we think Jesus doesn't, isn't interested in reaching them. But he is. He always is challenging them. And he's always hoping to reach them. And there was a remnant of Pharisees and Sadducees and people on these, you know, in the leadership of the time that did follow Jesus that we see later on become part of the first church. And so Jesus was reaching these people as well. He wants all people to come to know him, not just the down and out. Yes, the down and out. He wants to make a place for them and allow them to be part of the church and be fully integrated into what's going on. But also the people who are the elites, he's interested in reaching. He wants to reach everyone. Now the problem with 
the Pharisees, or self-righteous people, if I could widen the category, is that they don't think they need to be saved. They don't think that they need Jesus. They do think that at the end of the day, their works, their deeds, who they are, will save them. I think right now, if you had a conversation with most people and you said, hey, uh, when you die, what's going to happen? They'd say, I'm going to go to heaven. And you'd be like, okay, well, how do you know that? I think their answer would probably be like, because it would just kind of be a travesty not to let me in. Like, I'm a pretty good person. In comparison to all the people around me, I'm, I'm pretty good. Some of you would be like, nope, that's not me. And you know what? It's a benefit for you to know that you need to be saved. Some self-righteous people will never get over their pride. They'll never get beyond their self-righteousness to see that they need a Savior. Some of us know we need a Savior. Some of us don't know we need a Savior. But all of us, all of us come to the cross at the same place. We're all sinners who need to be, to be saved. And so the, uh, Nicodemus comes to him at night to ask him this question. Jesus replied. Now Jesus replies in a way that answers a question that Nicodemus hasn't even had a chance to ask. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus hasn't even asked, which essentially is this question, what must I do to receive, to be in heaven? What must I do to receive this eternal life that you're talking about, to be part of this kingdom that you're building? What is the story here? And we see this question multiple times in scripture. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to be part of the kingdom? And he says, hey, you know, for you? Go sell everything you have and then come and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler goes away sad. But I I think that question is honest for everyone as we come to Jesus. The question of what must I do? And Jesus' answer is often personal. Like I can stand up here and preach a sermon to you and I can tell you what scripture says and who Jesus is. But there's a personal uh, relationship happening between you and God where God calls you to do certain things. And that's what it looks like for you to worship God and to become uh, part of a relationship with him, right? Like, I can think of times in my life I think God might have said to me, put down the controller and go pick up a chair. Go do something. Go serve your church, right? There were moments where, like, I would just want to lose myself in video games, right, at at certain times in my life. Or uh, times when I think God might have said to me, if I said, hey, what must I do? He would have said, lay down your expectations and pick up the plan that I have for you. You built all these expectations, all these things that you think are going to happen, that you're trying to make happen. Why don't you just lay those down, and why don't you pick up the plan that I've got for you? Or there are times when I think God would have said to me, let go of your pride and start washing some feet. But the question is, what would Jesus say to you today if you went to him and you asked him, hey, what must I do? What does it look like for me to follow you? I believe his answer is personal. That yes, there's an answer for what it means to have salvation Okay? That there's a, an entry point that all of us walk through the door of salvation, but then the answer is personal because we all have different idols in our lives. We all serve different things. We all have different priorities. We're all into different stuff, and Jesus roots it out, man. He looks at you. He looks into your heart, and he tells you exactly what it looks like for you. So for Nicodemus, he says, you have got to be reborn, dude. And Nicodemus is like, I, I, don't, I don't really under, understand what you're talking about. You know, we have this... Uh, one of the really cool things about our house, I'm not sure how much to talk about it because it's like the joy of our lives right now, but like it feels sometimes braggy. It, our house is super bougie, okay? Like if I'm just going to be super honest with you, I, and I don't, I don't mean to put this on anyone. I don't know if this term is offensive to you, but we always joke that we're like white trash, okay? I, I don't know what white, I don't want to say that too much, but like we, we always joke that we're like, we're trailer park people. This is what, what we always say. Like 
we're likely to have a kid, you know, when we were younger, running around in diapers who hasn't been showered in a couple days. Like, we're likely to be the ones that have the pile of laundry that hasn't been picked up and dealt with. We're likely to be the ones that, like, and somehow we found ourselves living in this, like, incredibly bougie house where I walk around and I just, like, I'm like, is this my house? Like, this isn't, this is crazy. And one of the cool things about buying it from a friend, we bought it from a friend, and that's a whole other story about how God is amazing and did some cool stuff in our lives, um, and I'd love to share it with you someday. Uh, but one of the things about buying it from a, a friend is that when we moved out, they left a Christmas tree for us, because it was right around Christmas time, and they put this gift under the tree. And when we moved in, we're like, what's, we're like opening presents, and we're like, what's, what's that? Like, me and mom didn't put that there. And then we're like, for a second, we're like, does Santa only go to bougie houses? <laughs> Like, is this, this is Santa did this. And we open it up, and the, it's, it's a, like one of those little uh, books um, that has, you know, pictures of the house being remodeled. And as you open it up, it's got side one, what it used to look like, side two, what it, what it was. And I, I was in the house when it first was purchased. It was a foreclosure. It was in rough shape. Uh, there was a lot about it that was just needed to be overhauled and redone, and it was, it was pretty beat up. Um, and so we often... You know, so we have this book that shows us the whole transformation of the entire house. And I mean, it's crazy, man. Like our closet, like I feel like I could, it could be our bedroom. It's that big. Like our, our bathroom looks like it's in a magazine. Like it's just crazy. The master bath, like the kitchen is like, it's like a, I don't know, 15 foot stainless steel counter that we can sit eight people at when we have people. Like it's just so bougie. And I just keep walking around thinking like, I don't, I'm not the right person for this house. Um, and so we've just leveraged it for everything we've got. But this book shows the transformation of what it was to what it is. We, when people come over, we hand them the book, and they're like looking through it, and they're like standing there, and they're looking around, and they're like, where I'm standing right now used to be a fireplace that was like two-sided, and there used to be a wall right here, and there was just like a little window, and it, look, at these, look at how this was set up. And then, you know, like they kind of see themselves in the house, and they see what it is now, and they see what it was like. Was like and, I mean, it was a total gut. They ripped everything out. They ripped all the floors out. They ripped the ceilings out. They took down walls. They put in beams to carry the load of the, of the roof. They, I mean, they redid every single appliance, every single you know, outlet, every single light fixture. Everything is brand new. And I think what Nicodemus is doing is he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, hey, I need a tweak. I think I'm pretty good. I'm rich. I'm incredibly well-respected. I think I'm doing a pretty good job here, but I need you to tweak, tweak me. And Jesus starts with the answer that Nicodemus, the question he hasn't even asked, which is, no, you don't need a tweak, Nicodemus. It's a gut job. Like, it's a, it's a complete overhaul and complete renovation. You think the inside is okay. It's not okay. You need to be reborn all of your religious stuff that you've been doing your whole life, all this tithing, all of this going to church, all of this prayer, all of this, it had some value, but this is not what it looks like to follow me. I'm going to reach in and I'm going to tear down walls and I'm going to put in beams to hold the structure and I'm going to replace every fixture and every outlet and every sink and I'm going to redo the plumbing and the electrical. And when I come into your life, it's going to be a rebirth. People will stand around inside here and will not see where they are in this place. It would be completely so brand new and different that there will be, like, it'll be a gut job. You're lucky that I don't rip the whole thing down to the foundation and just rebuild. Like, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, that you have to be reborn. And I think so many of us, we grew up in a religious home. We're, like, good people. We're, like, solid. Like, 
we like pay our taxes, we take care of our kids, we care about our neighbors. Like we, we're like good, we're good, solid people. And at the end of the day, your self-righteousness could keep you from allowing Jesus to make you reborn. At the end of the day, you might be doing DIY projects all throughout your own house and making a mess of things when Jesus wants to come in and gut the thing and rebuild it from top to bottom. So at the end of this thing, you're standing around inside of your own house saying, I can't believe I live here. This is nothing like I could have even seen or done. Jesus wants to remake you completely, not just tweak you a little bit. And if you're, if you're thinking that you're already pretty good and that Jesus puts the, sort of the cherry on top, then you've missed the whole idea. He wants to completely transform you from dead to alive, from a person who's full of sin and struggling in their own sin to someone who is made new. He answers Nicodemus' question and says, I know that you're super religious and super respected and super wealthy, and seems like you've got everything going for you, but I need to completely rework everything on the inside of you that what you're doing is not enough. It's never going to get you there. It's a gut job. It's tearing it down to the studs and then rebuilding. And that's what he says to, to Nicodemus. Then Nicodemus is looking for a few tweaks, and Jesus is looking to tear it all out and rebuild a new birth. He says, how, how can someone, this is Nicodemus responding, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And, you know, the original language does not, uh, you know, sarcasm doesn't read well. If, you, if, you're, if you're ever texting somebody and you're using sarcasm, you don't do it. Like, it's terrible. Like, it, sarcasm never reads. I don't know if this is sarcastic or if this is just like a first century Jew just like stuck in like a very concrete understanding of what Jesus is saying. Like, uh, Jesus, I don't know. I was there at the, I was there at my kid's birth. It was just, it was, it was a lot of screaming. There was a lot of, there was a lot of, you know, there was blood. There was a lot of like, like, you know, intensity. And that was just me. That was just me at my kid's birth. Like imagine what Marty was going through. Like, like, I know I worked on that joke all week and it just, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't go. He's like, Jesus, I don't know if you've thought this through, but this is going to be awful. I know you're like a miracle man, but like, I can't, I can't be re, reborn, right? And I wonder if it's sarcastic. I wonder if he's being honest. I wonder if this is just like a, like a um, turn of phrase where they're going back and forth and kind of being smart with each other. But Nicodemus does not understand that what Jesus is saying is he's talking about a spiritual rebirth. You know, something that is not physical, obviously. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. And for a lot of my life, when I read this passage, I always thought Jesus was talking about, um, like, being born physically and then being born again spiritually. And actually, um, as you kind of dig into this verse and you start to understand it, you know, we talked about being born of water and of the Spirit. Well, the Jews didn't, you know, we say a lot of times, okay, well, the, the, it's time for the baby to come. The, the water broke, right? That's a phrase that we use. It wasn't a phrase that they used. They didn't associate water with birth. This, he's not talking about a physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual birth. And when he's talking to Nicodemus, you have to remember Nicodemus has like huge sections of the Old Testament memorized. Like he knows all, all the prophets and he knows all the, you know, the, what we have in our Bible is the Old Testament. That was his scripture, and he studied it every day, and he knew it. And so Jesus is very, actually, almost very clearly referring to 
a passage in Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, which is not on our slides, just so if you're following in the back there. Uh, Ezekiel 36. And here's, here's what Ezekiel has to say someday about the Son of Man, the Messiah, who will come. He says, uh, when that day comes, this is the Messiah speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Uh, he, you gotta, if, if you're any kind of speaker, you have to know your audience. And Jesus very clearly connects with this passage in Ezekiel about the Messiah, the Son of Man, who will come and who will replace a, a stone heart with a heart of flesh that'll be like a rebirth, that he'll clean people of their sins and impurities, and that they will now follow him through his, through his spirit, right? So Jesus talks to him in a way that connects with who he is. Jesus is not quoting Ezekiel when he's out talking to the masses. And the in the, um, you know, when he's out doing uh, his Sermon on the Mount, all of his connection points are about their, their jobs, their culture. The, you know, he connects to certain prophets, but they would have been really well-known, psalms that were well-known, songs that they sang he would have been connecting to. In this case, he's dealing with an elite, and he uses a connection that is something only a, an educated person in that time would actually pick up on. I've, and I read this my whole life. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water. I thought, oh yeah, born of water, like born of a woman. And then the spirit, right? Born of the spirit, reborn, having a rebirth. And right, flesh gives birth to flesh. That makes sense to me. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. But that's not what he's connecting to. He's saying when the Messiah comes, he's going to pull the stone heart out of us and replace it with a heart like we're going to be able to feel and be emotionally connected to what God is doing and be, you know, his spirit is going to be moving inside of us. We're going to go from death to life. This rebirth is a thing that's going to happen in our, our lives if we will see the Messiah and we will give ourselves to him. It sounds like a rebirth to me. Jesus continues on. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Jesus uses a word play here because the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word uh, in the original language. It's the word pneuma, like pneumatic, pneumonia. These are words that come from the same uh, root word, pneuma, which means spirit and means um, breath. And so Jesus does a play on words. You don't know where wind slash spirit blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound, but you cannot know where it comes from or where it is going, so it is with everyone born of the wind slash spirit. We see in Acts when the uh, Holy Spirit comes into the room and sits on the disciples, a incredibly loud wind basically blows open all of the windows and comes and is, enters the room, and it's like a physical manifestation of the Spirit. But it's also it's talked about as wind. And so Jesus connects that. He's like, hey, there's something coming. You, you can't even quite fathom yet, but there's something coming that will take that a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, and you'll be able to follow me, and you'll be able to do the things that I call you to do because the Holy Spirit will be the thing that will, will do the work. Nicodemus says, how can this, how can this be? And he still doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, and to give him some credit, 
It's hard. <laughs> Jesus has not gone to the cross yet. He has not died. This hasn't been wrapped up. It's not easy to understand. The disciples are always asking him questions. Jesus, we don't understand what you just said. Like, uh, there's a, a whole sermon series on certain parables that Jesus teaches where it's like he tells people and then he has to go back and reteach the disciples what he actually told them. And then he's got to get so literal that he's like, okay, let me just stop. Okay, the seed that falls on the path, it's this. The seed that gets choked up by thorns, it's like he has to go back and explain it because sometimes it is hard to put the pieces together. And Nicodemus is super smart. Right? He, he knows he could totally follow with what Jesus is saying, but what Jesus is saying is so outlandish to him that he's not connecting the dots. And Jesus has established, essentially up to this point, what the problem is. You need to be reborn. You're trying to tweak things, but you need to have a gut job. Like, this isn't going to work for you, Nicodemus. So let me, let me tell you what it is that you need, and then I'll get to a place where I'm actually going to explain to you what this looks like. Um, but you think about what Nicodemus has done right so far. So let me just stop and say, he has quit going along with the crowd. He has removed himself from the crowd. He's not allowing the crowd or the culture or the pervasive stuff that's being said about Jesus to influence him. No, he, he has stepped out and he has said, I'm going to let Jesus define who he is to me. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to have some courage I'm going to go and look Jesus in the eye and ask him to explain this to me. And I think sometimes we get really caught up in what the world has to say. You know, and I know this happens with like social media. I was thinking about this the other day. And it's like sometimes when you're looking online and you're seeing kind of all these, uh, and you can tell my age by what I'm going to reference here, all these tweets coming through. I know like the same thing could be said about TikTok or the same thing could be said about Facebook or, or whatever, Instagram, whatever your like method of kind of connecting with culture around you is. And I'm reading all these tweets and just thinking like, man, it feels like the entire world is changing their thoughts on this thing or like the way that everybody sees this is so different than the way that I see this. But I, I did just like, a little bit of research, like just this much. It was very, very not a lot. But did you know that uh, I'm just going to talk about Twitter for a second because that's my preferred method of you know, engaging with the world. In fact, I'm so glad no one follows me on Twitter. It's a great follow because I'm always out there posting controversial stuff and I'm glad no one in my church follows me. Um, so please don't follow me on Twitter. So there you go. Um, but only 20% of the adults in the United States use Twitter. Okay, So it's like, that's, that's something. And adults, not everybody you know, because Gen Z is actually like bigger than the adult population. So like just 20% of the adults. And then of that, those 20%, only 25% of them are actually active and they post 97% of the content. So when I'm in that hole looking at what I think the world has to say about a certain thing, what I'm actually seeing is only 5% of the entire country communicating. And I would say the entire thing leans in a certain direction. And so here I am looking at what 5% of the world has to say who leans in a direction that I don't lean in. And sometimes I can get caught up thinking this is what the world thinks about what's going on. And the same thing is true for any of these social media apps. Like in TikTok, it's probably a lower uh, or younger demographic, but you're looking at what, like, what teenagers have to say. Like just remember how stupid you were when you were a teenager. <laughs> like just back up and go, do I care what they have to say? No, I really don't. And if you're like 40 and you're on TikTok, like get off. Like what are you doing? You know, or on Instagram, do I care what millennial hipsters have to say? No, I really don't, right? And only a small percentage of them anyways. And most of them are just posting pictures that aren't even real. This is like, I made this 
meal look way better than it was. It actually wasn't that good, but when I put the right filter on it, it looks beautiful. My life is perfect and yours is terrible. No, it's not. Only a few people. It's only a few people, right? And Facebook is like, here's another political argument that I want everyone to get into, okay? Gen X, maybe? I don't know. Um, I know I was going somewhere. Hang with me. Nicodemus has pulled himself out of his culture. He is not listening to what people have to say around him. He does not care what the other religious elites have to say about Jesus. They weren't going to listen anyways. They're, they're saving themselves in their own self-righteousness. He doesn't care what the people have to say about the hero, Jesus. They've had heroes before, and he doesn't really care when they start to love something. He probably even looks at it skeptically. But what is he actually doing? He's seen something real and powerful, and he's honestly going to Jesus and saying, you define who you are. Tell me who you are. And he's showing an honest amount of curiosity and courage. And when we come to Jesus, we have to come with this openness to let Jesus define who he is. The minute, think about this, the minute you go Google the question, all it's feeding you is the crap that the culture around you has said is important. And most of the time, you know, you'll find anything you want on on Google if you ask the right question. And most of the time we come at it with a preconceived idea and we ask the question and then there's a guy in his underwear in his mother's basement who put up a blog post about something about, you know, all this stuff and then it like ruins our faith because now we just can't even fathom how Jesus could be telling us the truth because, you know, all this... And it's like, no, this is a small percentage of people saying something, you know, that is uh, trying to define who Jesus is and it's like, no, just go to the source. How does Jesus define who he is? He's already told Nicodemus, you're going to need a gut job. I'm going to have to change everything about you, all of your religious garbage that you've been doing your whole life. They're just rags, as Paul would say. They're just, they're just rags. They're nothing. And then he gives him a, a, an idea of what the gospel actually looks like. If you ever ask your, yourself the question, like if Jesus was giving the gospel, what would it look like? Well, here it is. This is him telling, explaining the gospel. Before it's fully finished, he's explaining what's going to happen. So this is Jesus uh, talking back to Nicodemus. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you don't understand these things? Now, by the way, when he says you are Israel's teacher, that puts Nicodemus in an even crazier, small category of people. Like, he refers to him as the teacher of Israel. Like, people had incredible respect and listened to what this guy had to say. And he was even more significant than I think we even give him credit for when we read this. Like, this is the elite of all the elites, this guy. You're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people, you do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe what I speak to you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He's connecting himself to the Son of Man. In Ezekiel 36, the, the very beginning part of that chapter says, Son of Man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, Mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. That's before he gets to the part about the, the, the stone heart and the flesh heart. Right? The Son of the Man is a Son of Man is a term that was given to this Messiah who would come in Ezekiel, and it's a term Jesus used of himself to describe his own humanity and to connect him back to those messianic verses. Jesus is about to share the gospel here, and he's about to he's basically set up the gospel by answering the question that Nicodemus didn't even know he was going to ask. And you know, you have to stop and say, 
The gospel here is good news for everyone, not just the down and out, but also the elite. One of our values here at this church is that we are convinced Jesus' gospel is good news for all. It's good news for a self-righteous religious person who thinks they have all the answers, and it is good news for someone who is in the gutter at their lowest moment in their life. That the gospel connects to every single person because it's personal. Because yes, there's an entry point to faith where you put your faith in Christ, and we'll see that in a second, but then there's a personal application for each person as we live out our Christianity. That all of us are dead in sin unless we look to Jesus, who was held up on a pole. He was a sacrifice for all of us. We are convinced Jesus' gospel is good news. And so Jesus talks to Nicodemus, knowing his audience, listen to what he says, just as Moses Lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. You're like, yeah. Like, when I would speak at camps to students all the time, you know, we'd go through the the week and they would always say, hey, we really want you, like, Wednesday night or Thursday night to do, like, a big gospel presentation. We want you to explain the gospel in as simple terms as possible, and we want you to challenge everyone personally to accept Jesus. It was always my favorite, favorite night of the week. Like when you're, when you're speaking to kids at a camp, like it's the thing that you are looking forward to the whole week. And you know in that moment, every kid in that room, whether they've accepted Jesus a hundred times in their life or whether they're brand new to camp, they're all accepting Jesus. They're all going to weep. It's going to be this amazing, emotional, incredible time. And I can tell you, I've given that talk probably hundreds of times, to be honest with you, in 20 years of youth ministry. And I have never used the snake in the desert on a pole as the means of communicating the gospel. What the heck is Jesus talking about here? Like, all the, by the way, the sort of unschooled uh, fishermen in the room are like, what? Nicodemus is following right along, man. He's tracking. He knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. In Numbers chapter 21, there's this crazy story about the Israelites. There's a lot of crazy stories about the Israelites. There's a lot of things we have to overcome as Christians when we tell stories about the Israelites in the Old Testament. Um, And it's a great conversation to have, by the way. But Numbers 21, they start complaining because they're wandering around the desert and there's no water for them to drink and there's no food for them. But every day they wake up and there's magic bread on the ground. I don't know what it looked like. I know that my, uh, my wife's family, they were missionaries in Africa, and uh, they would get care packages that would come uh, from the United States to Africa. And one time uh, they got marshmallows in one of their care packages. It's like impossible to get in the middle of Africa, right? And so uh, Marty and her family tell a story of like going out and sharing the marshmallows with some of the African kids. And they were like, we have never eaten anything like this. And they were like, cool, let's tell you a story about magic bread and they told them the story about manna in the desert and explained to them that the manna was like these marshmallows. I don't know. <laughs> we don't know what it was. But the Israelites are complaining that there's magic bread every single day when they wake up. And I guess you could get tired of eating marshmallows. Yeah, I get tired after about one. I'm like, I've had one and I've had enough. I, I need one peep about every Easter season. That's about all I need. And you think like, these people are complaining that every day they wake up in this desert where it's just a complete barren landscape and somehow they're sustained by this God who has put magic bread on the ground. And they're complaining about it. So God, it says this in scripture, I can't undo what it says, I'm just throwing this out there, Numbers 21, you can go read it later. It says he sends snakes into the camp to bite all of them. 
and many of them die. This is how Jesus is explaining the gospel to Nicodemus. So then they go back to Moses and they say, hey, what we did was wrong. We shouldn't have complained. We shouldn't have, you know, like given God a hard time for this, given you a hard time for this. We're like, we're jerks. We know we did wrong. Can you go pray and ask God to remove the snakes? And what Moses does after this interaction with God, where he prays on behalf of the people, is that they, him and God come to this understanding that he's going to make this bronze snake and put it on a pole and stick it up in the middle of the camp. And anyone who gets bitten by one of these snakes, if they look to the, the bronze snake on the pole, then they'll be saved. If you don't look at the bronze snake, you're not going to be saved. You'll die when you're in the venomous bite that you have. And if you do look at the bronze snake, you'll, you'll live. And he says, it's just like that, Nicodemus. What? What Jesus is connecting here is this idea. I mean, think about it. If you get bit by one of these snakes and you look up at that pole and somebody comes to you and says, hey, you can just handle this really easily. Just look at that pole. You're not going to sit there and be like, nah, I'm not going to give that a shot. You're going to be like, where's the pole? Let me look. I'll, I'll try it. I heard it worked for Lucille. Hopefully it'll work for me. Right? Jesus is connecting this idea that the people who had the, the snake bite, just to see if you can follow his logic, that when they looked at the statue, they were saved. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, hey, I'm going to be put on a pole, just like that. If you will look to me, you will be saved. I, I don't know why we overcomplicate this sometimes. Like, why we have to have every question answered or everything figured out before we become a Christian. It's as simple as, if you will look to Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to make you right, you will no longer be self-righteous. You'll be righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. If you look at that pole that Jesus hung on, you will receive what it is that you need. That's what he's connecting to Nicodemus. So he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The gospel is presented in a very personal way to Nicodemus that wouldn't have worked on almost anybody in that day, except for a religious elite, except for somebody who was so wealthy, except for somebody who was so educated. It jars him out of... I mean, the two references Jesus has made is to Ezekiel 36 and Numbers 21. Like, for God... And this is John now. That story now with Jesus and, and Nicodemus is over. Here's John's commentary on the story of the personal decision or relationship that Jesus and Nicodemus have, which, by the way, we don't know how it ends. This is, be, again, one of those stories where it's like a cliffhanger. I would actually call this in a minute here a wraparound sermon illustration. I'll, I'll tell you in a minute here. So John, this is John, what he says. He goes, this is his commentary now. It switches over to the author of John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He says, if you just look to Jesus, you'll be saved. And if you don't, you will die in your self-righteousness and your pride. I just think there are a lot of people who are living in their self-righteousness and pride 
they're living, they're living this like moral, religious life, and they think they're okay, but they haven't actually looked to Jesus and given him their entire life so that he can gut the house and rebuild it. That's what he's saying to Nicodemus. It's not a tweak job. I can't just change some stuff about you. I need it all. I need full access, and we're going to tear this down and rebuild it. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And some of us, I think we, we grew up in a religious family. We grew up being moral people. We kind of ran the life that we thought we were supposed to. But if we really tear down, and we really look underneath the surface, if we really see what's going on, it's our own self-righteousness that we put our faith into. It's not Jesus that we put our faith into. It's our own abilities. It's our own pride. It's our own way of making things happen. And we have put all of that effort in and said, I'm good enough and God will, would have to be crazy not to allow me into heaven. I go to church, I give, I serve, I do all the stuff, but you could be dead in your self-righteousness if you haven't looked at Jesus and put your faith in him. And that's it. It means anyone can, the person in the gutter or the religious elite, can put their pride aside and look to Jesus and say, I need him for salvation, I need him to do the work and so we don't know what happens to Nicodemus. We don't know. We don't know what happens. And it's like the craziest, most, why did John put the story in here and not tell us what's going on? Like, it's so frustrating when they don't tell us the whole thing. Like, the, the, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. The prodigal son ends with, with us not knowing whether the older brother goes into the house or not. I don't think that was the point of the story. That's probably why he didn't tell us. But we actually see Nicodemus in John chapter 7 and John chapter 19 this is why I call it a wraparound. These are the best illustrations. When you tell the beginning part, the beginning of the sermon, and then you wrap around at the end, and you tell the second half, the rest of the story that you didn't see, you didn't know, and then everyone's like, oh, he's connecting it back to the beginning. It's like a little trick that pastors have. <laughs> Next time I do it, you're all going to be looking at me like, mm-hmm. Here's what, here's what John says. We, we, we see Nicodemus in John chapter 7 where he argues not to arrest Jesus. So it seems to be on Jesus' side. Here's what it says in John chapter 19. This is why we know that Nicodemus was super rich, by the way. This is not on your screen, so just listen to me here. This is John 19, 38. Later, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea must have been so important because he could just walk in and have a conversation with Pilate. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish Leaders, There's that same kind of fear that we saw in, in place here for Nicodemus. But with Pilate's permission, and, and by the way, what, what had happened here is after the crucifixion, there were people hanging, um, Jesus and the, the two criminals were hanging, and they hadn't necessarily, uh, the, the criminals hadn't died. So they actually went to Pilate and asked for permission to break their legs so they would die quicker, so they could get them off of the crosses before the Sabbath. Because they didn't want at Passover, or uh, after the Sabbath, to have these dead bodies hanging while people were worshiping. I mean, just think about how morbid that is because as you breathe on a cross, you are putting all of your weight into kind of lifting yourself up to take a breath and then putting yourself down. If they break your legs, you die faster. This is what the Jews were doing at the time. Like, hey, can we kill these guys faster so we can get them down so we can have our, our, our celebration of Passover? Like, craziness. So it's secretly, and this is after the death has happened, they buy a basically need to be taken down. Uh, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, took Jesus away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. There he is. We haven't heard about him. 
We've only seen one other moment with him. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. This is such an enormous... He must have been the richest person in Israel. This is about three to four years of salary for a rich person in Israel at that time. This is like, you know, as much as more than you'd spend on an engagement ring. I don't know what they say, three months, like three years. I don't know, whatever it is. It's a lot. This is crazy amount, 75 pounds. Most bodies were embalmed like with just like a a couple pounds. Here comes Nicodemus there to embalm the body with 75 pounds of embalming fluid. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. They, they take the body down and they spend time cleaning Jesus' body. They have to remove any foreign substance that's in his body. So, I mean, just think about what that looked like. Just dried blood, matted hair. They flip him over on his back. He's got just, uh, you know shards of wood in his back from being on the cross. I don't think it had a finished carpentry feel to it. Right? I mean, they're just wiping away all of the effects of what Jesus had just gone through. It's Joseph of Arimathea and it's Nicodemus that get to clean Jesus' body and wrap him. What an intimate moment that Nicodemus gets to have. His Savior, who he's put his faith into, who he's given his money to, essentially. This is what 75 pounds of myrrh looks like. What he's giving his time to, it would have made both of them unclean. They wouldn't have been allowed into the temple until they went through a cleansing ritual after this was over. We ask, what what did Nicodemus decide? It looks pretty clear that he decided to follow Jesus. That he realized that no matter what he was going to do, no matter how great he was, no matter how much respect he had, no matter how much money he had, no matter what was going on in his life, how great and respected and amazing he was, that he needed Jesus to come in and gut the whole house. It can't be clearer than that. Do everything you want. Try it as much as you can. Be as wealthy as you can. Be as good as you can. Do everything right as much as you can. And you still need a complete overhaul from top to bottom by Jesus. You still need to look at the cross and say, I need Jesus. I cannot do this on my own. Do it as perfectly as Paul did it. And you still can't get where you need to go. Do it as perfectly as Nicodemus did it. And you can't do it on your own. You have to look to Jesus and you have to say, I need Christ They took Jesus' body down, they wrapped him, the two of them laid him in a tomb, as was the burial custom of the Jews. They laid him in a place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new tomb, one that had never had a body laid in it, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Jesus came not just for the down and out, he came for every person, because all of us, no matter how good we are, we're dead in our sin. We need a complete and total, top to bottom, renovation from a God who wants to change our lives, who wants to cleanse us of our impurity, and wants to make us right with Jesus, with God. We finish in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you didn't leave us dead in our sin. 
that you came to save all of us, no matter how good we are. And God, right now we, we confess that we are sinners. We confess that we are unable on our own to be made righteous. God, would you show us the places in our lives where we are living in our own self-righteousness and pride? And would you continue to renovate the house? Would you continue to ask for permission for those places we don't want to give you and push your way into those places that we're protecting? And God, would you completely remake us? Jesus, thank you that you went to that cross so that we could be made right in your eyes. So that God would look at us and he would see you. We thank you that you came for the down and out. And you came for the self-righteous religious people. That there is no one who's good enough on their own. That all of us need to come and look to you for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.